So, John chapter 12. Uh, you know, a lot, we've, we've had a lot that's gone on recently. Uh, I know the women were, were busy last night. The guys had their hands full with the children that they were watching. Uh, we had the, the SC3 Rise Up uh, opening day was yesterday, the grand opening. So there's been a lot going on. Last week, the women's conference. And what I know is our church body, we got a bunch of doers. And so even when we're not doing, we're always planning for the next thing that we're going to do. I mean, I know the outreach team met this morning, so they're already planning some things. Uh, I would just invite you to get away from that for a moment. This morning, I want you to find rest in where we're going in, in Scripture. I want you to just spend some time, not saying that you sit there lazily and just letting me give you information and that's it. I want you to engage mentally, but I, I don't want you to think about everything else you have to do. Because this morning, what we get to see is what Christ has done on our behalf. And we don't have to do. We get to rest in that. Last week, uh, we saw the words of Christ in John 12, verse 23, when he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And as we've seen, as we've gone through this study of John, that started off in John chapter 2, and we, we did a really good job of pointing out to you that this was going to be a common theme throughout this gospel, that there was a divine timeline from that very beginning when Jesus started his ministry. He's looking to the cross. He knows where he's going. And so you recall in John chapter 2, he tells his mother, my hour has not yet come. And as you progress through John's gospel, my hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. The hour is quickly approaching. And last week in John chapter 12, we saw that Jesus said, Now. My hour is now. And of course, he's speaking to that divine timeline according to which he has stuck to and which he will reveal himself in undeniable glory as the Son of God. As he goes to the cross, he dies, he will be buried, and then he will rise three days later. He's now entered into Jerusalem. And we got to laugh a little bit last week. Because he didn't ride into town on a war horse. He rode in on a stubborn donkey. He isn't riding in to defeat Rome. But he's riding in to overthrow the ruler of the world. Satan. And he's going to defeat his kingdom that oppresses mankind. Last week, Jesus' words were very clear as to how he would be glorified. Just like that grain of wheat, he would fall to the ground and die so that he would bear much fruit. And so we know where Jesus is going. In the same way, we were challenged last week to consider how we too might die to ourselves in order that we might bear much fruit. In order that we might serve eternally our King and be good servants. As Blake mentioned last week, we're within five days of the cross. This is the Passion Week. The cross is quickly coming and as it is, Jesus' eyes are firmly fixed on that cross. And so this morning, we look to the cross with him. 
And we're going to look at three different aspects of the cross of Christ. We're going to look at the troubling aspect of the cross. We're going to look at the glory of the cross, and then we're going to look at the victory of the cross. So John chapter 12, we're going to be in verses 27 through 33 this morning. Starting off in in verse 27, that first part, Jesus continuing his conversation with the disciples says, Now is my soul troubled. Having pointed the disciples to the necessity of his death, that he must die in order that he must bear much fruit, he follows that up and he, he opens up and he's honest with them. He allows them, and by nature of John recording this, we get to see it too. We get to see a little bit of the emotion of Christ. And what does he say? My soul is troubled. Now, I don't know if that strikes you like it strikes me, but here we have the Son of God, the eternal Word, going all the way back to John chapter 1, that has existed eternally in perfect union with His Father, who has created all things and without whom nothing has been created. And here's His soul is troubled. How can that be? How can the Son of God be troubled about anything? He's in complete control of everything that's happening here. We've already seen no one takes his life. He lays it down. He's the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. Why would he be troubled? How can this be? This is a difficult idea to reconcile. The deity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and also the humanity because He is fully God and fully man. Can you think of a time when you were greatly troubled? For some of you, it could be right now. You could have gone through something financially that really troubled you. Not knowing how you're going to provide for your family. Not knowing how you're going to provide shelter for your kids. It could be health, health situations. Somebody in your family is troubling you because you don't know what's going to happen. Not to make light of that, if that's what you recall, and definitely not to make light of the situation what Jesus is experiencing here, but to hopefully provide you with a helpful illustration. When I was thinking of a time that I was troubled that I would be able to teach from and not weep like a baby, um, I thought of the time I made my first F. Now, I realize some of you are so smart you've never made one. I also realize some of you have made so many that you can't remember the first one. But I remember my first F. Second grade, Miss Kennedy's class, Rose Pine Elementary. It was some sort of English grammar or something. I remember that part of it. It wasn't math. And Miss Kennedy would have let the students, and thinking back on it now, I don't, I don't know if you teachers still do this, but each, she'd give a stack of the papers to each, probably the better students, so the, the ones that are actually going to hand everything out and not run around the room, but hand us the stack, and we would go give each student their paper. We would look at their name. And of course, the benefit is, as competitive as I was, what'd she get? Okay. You know, and I'm handing out the papers. I get back to my desk, and I start going through the ones that all the other students have been walking around with, 
and I get to that one. And I remember sitting in my desk, I was on the right side of the room. This is so traumatic. I was sitting on the right side of the room, and I look at that paper in the top right corner, course in red ink, F. And to add to insult, circled, (laughs) F. And in that moment, I just remember, it's like almost like the world stopped. And I, I felt like, not that they were, but I felt like the whole class was whispering. Failure. He made an F. He failed. Then I started thinking about how disappointed Mama Shirley was going to be. She's going to be so disappointed in her son. Then I started thinking about the disappointment my dad was, and his is going to manifest itself a little differently. He's going to be a little angry. Like, go lay on your bed and wait for me to bring my belt in, kind of angry. I held it in the rest of the day. What felt like probably eternity was probably only about 20 minutes, because she always did it at the end of the day. And I'm walking. I remember walking alongside the gym, Towards the, towards the pickup line. My brother, kindergarten, pew, he's gone. He's oblivious to anything in the world. And I'm walking, head down, slowly, shrunken, shrunken uh, shoulders. My mom pulls up. open the door. I get in. Mama knows her baby. What's wrong? You know, waterworks. I made an F. I made an F. Teacher hasn't even shut the door yet, and I just can't control myself. I've been holding it in all day. And she's like, okay, it's, it's going to be okay. We get home, and she asks to see it. She looks at it. She says, wasn't this the homework you were supposed to have done? Yes, ma'am. Okay, well, it's going to be all right. And just as I'm starting to get hopeful, she says, we'll talk to your dad when he, he gets home. So I hide in my room the rest of the afternoon. And I'm not really playing. I'm just really thinking what's going to happen when dad gets home. I hear his, car, his truck drive up. He walks in the house. I hear the small talk. Hey, baby, how was your day? It was good. Where are the boys? They're in their room. By the way, David's pretty upset. And that's, okay, here it goes. Here's the conversation. He made an F. And my dad says, well, did you look at it? Yeah, it was the homework he was supposed to have done. And all was quiet. And then I hear the steps. See, the house was raised. So every step shaking the whole house, right? And I hear him get closer to the room. And in that moment, I was greatly troubled. <laughs> now, I tell you that story. Okay, everything was fine. Dad didn't abuse me or anything. He, he sat me down, and I had to do the homework all over again, and then I had to write lines. I will do my homework. I will do my homework. I don't know if that works, but uh, I mean, I remember it, so maybe it did. But I tell you that story because the trouble that I felt that day as a kid and the trouble that you feel, whatever situation you might have been in, pales in comparison to what Christ was experiencing. The mere fact that the Son of God would be troubled about anything tells you about the immense disturbance that he was experiencing. He was troubled. 
I mean, when you think about that illustration I just told you, see, I was troubled over the way that my classmates might treat me. Jesus was troubled over the way that the people would treat him. Let's not forget that. He would be shamed. He would be stripped of his clothing. He would be beaten to the point that he would be unrecognizable. Blake did a great job on Easter Sunday of talking about, describing for us what Christ would have endured physically. But what's more troubling than that, what was more troubling for me was what I was going to experience from my father. What Christ was experiencing here, what was more troubling than what man could do to him, was what he was about to take on from his father. Because he was going to take on the wrath, the holy, 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 righteous and just wrath of God for all of mankind that would believe in him. And take that upon his shoulders. He was taking on the perfect, just wrath of God. Undeservingly. You see, this death of Christ was fully experienced. He was not emotionally detached from what he was about to go through. He was 100% man, too. It disturbed his soul. Hebrews 12, 2 helps us where the author says that the founder and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, but at the same time despising the shame. For the joy that was set before him, but at the same time despising the shame. Those don't have to be separated. And look, it's difficult, right? It's difficult to reconcile that sometimes, to fully understand how could that be? But see, Jesus saw something in the future. And sure, some of that joy is those of us today. For the joy that was before him, he knew that he would bear much fruit, and we as the church are that fruit that have been redeemed, that have been set free from the bondage of sin. He went to the cross He paid that price so that we don't have to. Because we can never satisfy that. But there was something more than us. See, it wasn't all about us. If you continue in John 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come. This was the purpose of Jesus' coming to earth, to taking on flesh, to dwelling among his creation. It was to die. This was planned before the foundation of the world. Centuries have passed since the law was implemented, pointing mankind to the need of a Savior. Centuries have passed with prophets revealing the plan of God that a Messiah would come and redeem Israel and would redeem man. 33 years now, Jesus has walked this earth glorifying His Father along the way. And He gets to this point and He says, My soul is troubled, but should I pray to Him, deliver me from this hour? This is why I'm here. 
And so he says instead in John 12, 28, four words that wrecked me this week as I was preparing. Father, glorify your name. Father, my soul is greatly troubled. Glorify your name. It's similar to that prayer in the garden. When he says, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I pray that would be my response. When I'm faced with difficult situations, I pray that would be our response. When we find ourselves in the middle of something that's difficult, that's tough, Because see, this was convicting and encouraging to me this week. Convicting because I pray the other prayer far too often. Father, this is difficult. This is tough. Can you get me out of it? Father, I I can't go through this anymore. Will Will you free me from this so I don't have to experience this any longer? Instead of saying, Father, I'm in the middle of something difficult right now, but I know that your grace is sufficient for me, and I know that you can provide me with the strength that I need to endure this so that you would glorify your name. It's convicting. It's also encouraging because I've got a perfect Savior who did that, who endured far greater than I will ever have to endure. And despite the shame and the pain that was before him, submitted himself to serve and glorify his father. See, he was more concerned for the glory of God than he was of self-preservation. And we would do well to ask ourselves if that's where we are. We talk a lot about, you know, glorify God, not ourselves. But at what cost are we willing to go to to glorify our Father? You know, it's easy when things are going well. It's a little bit more difficult when it's destroying you, possibly. When it's ripping you apart. Father, glorify your name. If that would be our hearts every single day, that that we would be in a constant pursuit of the glorification of God. The joy that was set before Christ is now set before us. And if we would endure and persevere despising the shame. Look, it's okay to be honest with one another. It's okay to be honest with God and say, God, this is hard. In fact, I hate this. Whatever it is, I hate it. But would you make me faithful in that so that you would get glory? Because I know that you're at work and I know that's my purpose That's the end all of everything that exists. So, Father, just help me get through it so that you would get glory from it. 
And by doing that, it's not just about others. It's also to ourselves. Because in the middle of all that, we get to know our Heavenly Father a little bit better. We get to know Him. He reveals Himself to us, too. That's the trouble of the cross. It was troubling. But let's look at the glory of the cross. This is, it's a beautiful aspect that we get to see here in the cross. Picking back up in verse 28, after Jesus says that prayer, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I wish I had more bass in my voice, so I could, in my mind, that's probably what it would have sounded like. Because some people thought it was thunder. So I'm sure it was this deep rumbling. This is the third time the Father has spoken in the life of Jesus. The first time was at his baptism. The inauguration of his ministry, the Father speaks and says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. You see it again at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus reveals his glory to his disciples. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then we see it here for the third time. The week of passion where Jesus is approaching the cross. The Father speaks. He answers His Son's request and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Well, how has God glorified Himself? Now, that's a broad question. We can go all the way back to the Old Testament and we can walk all the way through. But specifically in the life and ministry of Jesus, how has He glorified Himself? Well, when we talk about glorified, that's, that's one of those church words that sometimes we just forget. We don't really know how to clearly define that, and so we just go with, well, that means to acknowledge that he's there. That means to thank him for what he's given us. But it's more than that. And I know a lot of us that have been here, I, I, from time to time, I'll, I'll remind you of this definition, but to glorify God means that you manifest his attributes, that you put on display his characteristics, who he is. God is loving, he is gracious, he is forgiving, he is merciful. You manifest that out of the Holy Spirit that's indwelling you. You reveal to others who God is. So you forgive. You're gracious. You're merciful. So when God the Father speaks and he says, I have glorified my name in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, How has Jesus put on display who his Father is? You go back to John 2, right? He's completely in control of all of creation. He turns water into wine. Nothing added, just says, there you go. Take it, fill it up, now go serve everybody. The best wine that any of them had ever tasted. He brings life to a dead man. He brings healing. He feeds the multitude, 20,000 plus, 5,000 men plus women and children that would have been there, and he feeds them with nothing but a handful of food. The words that he spoke, as we saw, he spoke with such authority, no man had ever heard anyone speak like this before. He is revealing who his Father is. He is revealing God. He is glorifying his Father. The Father says, I have glorified it. I've been doing it this whole time you've been on the earth, and I will do it again. He's talking about the cross. And when you look at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when you look at that cross and that empty tomb, there is nothing 
in the history of man that's been recorded that is that more clearly and comprehensively reveals the glory of God. Everything is on display right there. In the cross of Christ, we see the infinite love of God as he sends his son as a sacrifice to die for unlovable sinners like you and I, you and me. In the cross of Christ, we see God's holy wrath expressed upon sin. We see God's redeeming grace. We see his forgiving mercy. We see his perfect justice. And when you throw all that into the pot, and you look at every different aspect of that, you see his divine and infinite wisdom, that that was planned from the foundation of the world, that everything would happen in the time that it was supposed to. That's the glory of the cross. It reveals comprehensively who our God is. It is the most beautiful thing that has ever happened on this earth. Some of you have children. That's the most beautiful thing that you've ever witnessed, possibly. It's better than that. Some of us have been married, and that was a beautiful day when when I covenanted myself to my wife in honor of the love that Christ has for his church. That was a beautiful day. The cross trumps that. The glory of the cross exceeds anything that has ever happened. And it reveals who our Heavenly Father is. When we look to the cross, do we see that glory? Do we appreciate that glory, the beauty of what occurred that day? See, the way we can do that is we, we can look at every different aspect. As we grow in knowledge, we need to grow in knowledge. But through that knowledge, it should lead to a transformation in our hearts and in our souls as we think about and ponder and reflect on what occurred on the cross. Is that something that we cherish when Christ took our place? See, some people miss it. That's why I asked the question. Some people miss that glory. When you look at verses 29 through 30, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. You see, man's heart is so hardened. That's what, When we sing a song that says we need you to soften our hearts, we need you to break our hearts, it's because they're so hardened that when the Father speaks, oh, that was just thunder. They attribute it to something that's natural, something they can control, something that's explainable to them. Others mentally ascend to the fact that it is supernatural, but they, they stop short of the Father. They stop short of God and say, oh, that was an angel that spoke. Jesus makes the point that that voice and the words that were spoken were for their sake, for the sake of those who would hear those words 
and then see the glory of God revealed in that death, burial, and resurrection that was to come and would be reminded of those words, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So that they would see the glory of God, that they would see the glory of Jesus Christ as the Son. There was a cosmic war that was won that Good Friday. When the perfect, spotless, righteous Son of God died the death deserved by sinners. Satan, sin, and death have been defeated. And this was the fulfillment of the first gospel. If you go all the way back to Genesis 3, I did not put this in the slides, but I want you to see this. If you turn to Genesis 3, very early on, after the creation of man, was the darkest day. When God pronounces judgment, when he pronounces the punishment and the consequences of the fall of man, but as gracious and merciful as God is, even in that pronouncement, he reveals some hope. And that's the first place we see a proclamation of the gospel that will come. If you look in John 3, as he's pronouncing the 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 consequences to the serpent. In verse 14, John 3, 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here it is right here in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, that bruising of the heel, was, that was the cross. That was a very troubling thing for Jesus. See, a bruise can heal. And in three days, that bruise did heal, where he rose victorious over the grave. But in that act upon the cross, where his, bru- his heel was bruised, what did he do to Satan? What does it say? He crushed his head. He ended him. He was victorious. That's the first gospel. And there, on the cross, you see the fulfillment of that first promise from God in the middle of the curse. Satan will be vanquished. Lastly, we look at the victory of the cross because what Jesus said, see, when you understand the troubling aspect of the cross, you get to appreciate a little bit more the glory of the cross. And when you understand the trouble of the cross, you get to understand a little bit better and have a deeper appreciation for the victory that was won that day. And Jesus talks about that in verses 31 through 33. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
And then John gives us some commentary. He says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus here is looking to that cross. And when he talks here about the judgment of the world, what he's saying is when John, and we talked about this in John 3, but when John uses that word world, he's talking about the evil, natural state of the world. When we saw it in John 3, for God so loved the world, that was a quality, not a quantity. That was the current state of the world, that he loved the world despite its evil, natural state of his creation, that he sent his son to die on their behalf. Here he says the same thing, Jesus saying, now is the judgment of this world and the ruler of this world. That would be Satan. He is preparing to eradicate him, remove him from all power. He's going to win the battle. He's going to win the war. Now is the time because his hour has come. And we look to the victory of the cross. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. See, that comes in context whenever there were some Greeks that had come. They wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to know him. These are people that had possibly proselytized. They had become Jews. And if you remember when we were going through Ephesians, praise God for Ephesians, right, Carrie? When we were going through Ephesians, Blake did a good job telling us about the way the temple was laid out. And when we talked about Jesus going in to clear out the temple is because the Jews and the money changers, they had taken up all the space that was allowed for the the non-Jews, the Gentiles, to come in and worship, that that space was taken up. These Greeks had come to see Jesus. They wanted to know him. And so Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself, Jew and Gentile, black or white, poor or rich. I don't care what country you're from. I don't care what social status you have, economic status you have, what you've done in the past. None of that matters because Jesus says, quality. I've come to die for the world, the evil, natural state, and I will draw all people to myself. But he has to die to do it. What are our implications this morning? There's a side implication we've already addressed. The pursuit of the glory of God over our self-perseverance. Self-perservation. Yeah. Thank you. And that's tough. That is. But as I said, God's grace is sufficient. And so instead of praying, Father, deliver me from this. Let's pray, Father, make my heart okay with it. You can be honest. It's it's not fun. Father, would you make my heart okay and glorify your name? Father, glorify your name. Major implication here is looking at what Christ did on the cross, understanding what he endured, understanding the troubling aspect that it wasn't just physical, and it wasn't even just spiritual, but it was also emotional. He was an emotional man. He experienced emotion. 
He wasn't disconnected. It was, he wasn't indifferent to the cross as if um, go through the motions and do this thing. But his soul was troubled. And so you can relate to that. See, we have a high priest who knows what it's like. He can empathize with where we are. And so as Jesus was looking to the cross, and he was greatly troubled, now we can look to the cross to release us from that trouble that we may feel. Because he's bore that burden. There's no need for us to be troubled because he's taking that upon himself. We can look to the cross And we can recognize the trouble, but we can look at the glory. And that should stir up in us our affections towards Christ. It should stir up in us praise. Lives lived, committed to following Him no matter the cost. Even when it hurts. Committing ourselves to the glory of the Father, just as our Savior did. And when you, when you get to see that aspect of Jesus, I don't know about you, but when I saw that, it's like, man, I want to know him more. I want to know him more. You know, this was something that I had missed out on. The troubling aspect, the fact that Jesus was troubled by something. What else is there to know about Jesus? I want to know him. And then there's the victory of the cross. In Christ, Satan has been defeated. Sin has no power over us. We should celebrate in that. I mean, we celebrated that this morning through baptism, where we got to see the old woman become new symbolically. This is what's already occurred in her. She was buried with Christ, raised to walk in the newness of life. Life that is separate from bondage, delivered, having freedom, victorious, but we walk around in defeat. We give in to that. We can celebrate every single day of our lives. And I'm not saying celebrate like, oh, look at me because I'm, I'm free and I'm saved. Da, da, da. No, no, no. See, freedom came at a cost. And when when Jesus said, you must lose your life last week, you must lose your life to gain. It's not that you get this added benefit that you get to go around and do whatever you want to do because now I'm set free. You've given your life. You've surrendered your life. As Carrie pronounced this morning through baptism, no matter the cost, I'm following Jesus. Whatever I have to give up, I'm following him. For those of you who have not believed in Jesus, look, this could be completely foreign to you. I understand that. That's far-fetched, that a man would die, raised raised to new life three days later. There's a lot of things in Scripture that are hard to understand. That's why Jesus said it's a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's difficult. 
is foolish. But what you see today is the truth of God taking on the form of man because man cannot completely satisfy the punishment that was due to man. See, each one of you and I have committed an offense against God. He created us in His image, and we have defiled that image by not being obedient, by not manifesting Himself, by not glorifying our Father. And the consequences of that offense is death. Eternal separation from his favor. Eternal separation from him. And we couldn't completely satisfy that. If we were to endure that wrath, we would do it forever. Because we can't satisfy it. It took an eternal and a human to do that. Eternal being to satisfy the eternal infinite, just wrath of God. Jesus Christ was that. But man had to pay the price. Jesus Christ was man. And he did that on our behalf. And so what you see this morning is what he endured for us. And so I would just invite you to trust in his sacrifice on the cross for your behalf, for your soul, so that you will no longer be troubled. Surrender your life to following him no matter the cost. Because I'll tell you, he's a good savior. Our God is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. So believers, let's praise him this morning when you look at the troubling aspect of the cross, when you look at the glory of that cross, and you look to the victory that was won on that cross, there should be some praise this morning. We should want to know Him more. We should want to thank God for what He has done on our behalf, and that's what we're going to do. Father, we come to You this morning with grateful hearts as we see the glory of Your Son Jesus displayed in the cross and on the cross. Father, you have delivered us from defeat. Father, Jesus, we thank you for what you endured on our behalf. For the the trouble that you endured, that you persevered through, and for willingly becoming obedient and submitting yourself to your Father so that you might reconcile people unto him. Jesus, we thank you for paying the price on our behalf. And God, Father, we ask that you would by the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us the strength to endure so that you might receive glory. Father, would you make us okay with difficult trials and situations? So that we might make you known. 
And Father, if there's anyone here who has not trusted in your son, Jesus, I pray that you would soften their hearts, that you would open their eyes to see Jesus in a way that they hadn't seen him before. As the eternal son of God come to earth to save souls, to buy them back. Pray for new life this morning. And Father, we ask in the same words that your son prayed to you, Father, glorify your name. It's in Christ's name we pray and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.